Next year, all students in this university will have free tuition, without exception. That means uh, first year, second year, third year, fourth year, and fifth year. It means throughout the whole career of a student in the university. <laughs> the other thing we're going to do is this. The Newfoundland government are going to pay to every student at this university a salary over and above the free tuition. I foresee a university here that will be one of the real prides of all Canada and of all North America. Because remember this, already you are the one and only university there is in North America, in South America, in Central America. You are the only one in the Western Hemisphere with free tuition and a salary to boot. The only one. When Joey Smallwood announced free tuition and a salary for Memorial University students, he was met with thunderous applause. Because many see post-secondary education as something that benefits both individuals and society. So shouldn't it be publicly funded, like elementary school and high school? After all, higher education has been shown to improve job prospects, health outcomes, and even lifespan. To many, the idea that these things should only be available to those who could afford them is absurd and affront to people's rights in a democratic society. Enterprising as it was at the time, Smallwood's program didn't last long, though. When money got tight just a few years later, students had to start paying up. And for decades now, Memorial Student Union fought to freeze tuition fees and make post-secondary education in Newfoundland and Labrador as affordable as possible for students looking to build a future. In 1999, under pressure from students ahead of a snap election, Premier Brian Tobin gave Memorial an extra $7 million, quote, in the hopes that it will allow the university to freeze their tuition levels for the next two years. Then the Liberals cut tuition fees by 25%, and the Liberal and Conservative governments that followed, well, they maintained the freeze. Until last year, that is. Citing fiscal constraints, the province has made successive cuts to Memorial's operating budget in recent years. That's prompted the university to raise the price tag on tuition and other fees. Last year, tuition more than doubled for students from Newfoundland and Labrador, and almost doubled for students from elsewhere in Canada. International students? Well, they now pay $20,000 a year in tuition alone. Those grants and subsidies, the government said, would offset the negative impacts of higher tuition on lower-income families? Well, they're not cutting it. Government and senior administration at Memorial have repeatedly fallen back on the talking point that both the quality of education students receive at the province's only university and the cost of education here are competitive. But the rising cost of a post-secondary education in this province? Well, that's now contributing more to the national student debt crisis. 
Student debt in Canada has reached a staggering $22 billion, with a B. Graduates spend years, decades, paying off debt while entering an increasingly precarious job market. But it's not just the students who are being hurt. It's also the very people who make the university what it is. Last week, Memorial's faculty union went on strike. They're being joined on the picket lines now by members of other unions, but also by Memorial students who get that the same things threatening the quality of their professor's employment are the same things threatening the quality of education they are receiving. And the same things that, for many, stand in the way of getting a university degree. Faculty don't just want fair wages. They also want the growing number of absurdly underpaid contract instructors to have job security, the benefits of which would also transfer to the students. And they're also fighting for seats on the university's board of regents, which makes decisions that affect the entire university community, like how to spend money. But none of this can be understood without looking at the broader issue of the corporatization of the university, not just a Newfoundland and Labrador phenomenon. As public funding for post-secondary has been curtailed, corporations have been only too happy to help fill the gap, especially where the programs and research they fund make sense for their bottom lines. In turn, the university is a public good, education as a right, and the fostering of critical thought among the populace, those things have all fallen to the wayside. Our guest today has had a front row seat to how this has all unfolded in Newfoundland and Labrador, first as a student, then as a professor and a faculty union leader, then as a dean. Then she tried to do something about it, not by joining the student-led protests, but by entering the elite ranks of the university's senior administration. We'll talk with her in a moment. Stay where you're too. Noreen, I'm grateful that you're here, our first guest on Berry Grounds, and at such a critical time for Memorial University and for the province. But also, I've just enjoyed talking with you in the past. Um, I appreciate how you say what you think, and you've been a powerful voice for women in the local arts and academic communities. And that's why I raised an eyebrow when I heard back in 2017 that you had been appointed uh, permanent provost and vice president academic after you served for two or three years in an interim capacity there. You decided to take that on long into the era of the corporatization of post-secondary education, why did you accept that job, and, and what did you think that you could change? I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> Maybe the search committee asked me that. You know, I had been dean of graduate studies. I was already in a senior admin role for some time in a terrific opportunity, actually, because I got to work with graduate students, the graduate cohort, work towards internationalization, and uh, in a role very different from being a vice president or a provost, I was able to dispense money, provide scholarship and scholarship opportunities, so it was hugely positive experience. I also had a voice, obviously, at the admin table and was not shy 
about, uh, you know, stating my views about where the university was inching towards in company with most public universities in this country and elsewhere. And, you know, I felt supported by my colleagues, by my peers, by fellow deans. And I thought that um, being at an even higher senior level, I would have opportunity to to make changes to, first of all, I was the you know first woman in that role, which seemed important to do, to step up, to own that. And uh, I'd been at Memorial a long time. So I felt as if I understood the culture. I'd been a vice president of the faculty association and an executive member for a long time. I participated in bargaining, collective bargaining, as a MUMFA member. So I felt I had a good handle on the culture and evolving culture of the university. You know, there's an irony to all of this, or maybe an inevitable consequence is that the higher you go on the admin ladder, to some degree, the less of a voice you have, because you become part of a team, an administrative team that you know, compels you to speak with one voice and a voice you don't necessarily want to have or share. So it's very hard to break out of that. I've realized increasingly how, unfortunately, inevitably complicit one can become, even without being fully aware of it, because your intentions are to improve, to do good. But you're balancing a complex budget situation, lots of demands, the withdrawal of public funding from the university by government, and you you get caught up in not just the day-to-day stress of the job, but in being further removed, actually, from what you entered university for in the first place, working with students, supporting students. It's not that I forgot that. But the demands of that administrative role are so intense and um, ultimately really force you into a complicitous arrangement. And the option is to try and change that or quit. As soon as you stepped into the role on a permanent basis, I guess I shouldn't say stepped in, as, as soon as you were made permanent provost and VP academic, pretty much right off the bat, you and then-President Gary Kachanowski faced some fierce questioning and opposition from students in particular. In this clip from an April town hall meeting on campus, student activist Carrie Neal challenges Gary Kachanowski on his roughly half-million-dollar salary. Let's listen. Hello, uh, my name is Carrie Neal. I'm a Newfoundlander. I'm doing my master's here in sociology, and I just did my undergrad in economics. So I'm well aware of our fiscal crisis, and I'm hoping to get a good education so that I can afford the heavy tax burden that is being levied on my generation. I would like to know um, why our university is spending millions of dollars on headhunters, and why our president feels that he is worth more and should earn more than the Prime Minister of Canada. I'm only going to say that my salary has been public right from the first time that I was appointed. I'm competitive with other presidents' salaries across the country, and my salary was visible for everybody during my renewal process at the end of my first four years from my renewal into the second years. Do students vote on that renewal process? Okay, we're going to move on to the next question. 
Noreen, that day you were seated right next to Gary Kachanowski. Some might say that that whole interaction represents a key dynamic at Memorial University, where those fighting for an education, as soon as they challenge power, are shut down because certain things are sacrosanct. Yeah, I, I, it was brutal. That was absolutely brutal. I, I have a lot of respect for for Carrie Neal and her guts of standing up in a forum like that. Um, I, I would add just to your description that the room was packed. You know, it was a rare moment where we actually organized a town hall, one that I argued it was important to do, I might add, against some resistance. But we went ahead with it. And, you know, staff and faculty, largely faculty, were there, far outnumbering students. And it was interesting to me sitting there in a kind of painful, tortured moment of confrontation was how absolutely silent the faculty were. I'm not saying that I don't understand that, but you could hear a pin drop, not only when Carrie was asking questions, but if there were one or two questions in that whole hour from faculty, that would have been a lot. And it struck me that as I was sitting there, that people felt paralyzed really to say anything to us or to the president or in a public forum where they might have just felt unsure and uneasy about either supporting what Carrie said or challenging what Carrie said. There was a silencing that was happening in that room by the whole setup of it itself, I suppose which was, you know, counter to what I had hoped would happen, which would have been a kind of open debate and uh, discussion of, you know, some of the really serious challenges the university was facing on every level. One of my frustrations around that, and it remains to some degree the same today, is that the focus on the president's salary, albeit, let's call it outrageous, um, so disproportionate, to so many things, then and now, and, you know, the defense of it being just like any other president's salary, you know, is a pretty shallow one, let's face it. But I thought that in terms of the tactics of activism, that it was a distraction. I felt that intensely in that moment, and I didn't say that. If I had my time back, it's easy to say I would have. But I didn't. And, you know, I had to kind of respect my other colleagues sitting at the table who had agreed the president would be speaking unless we were directly asked something. We wouldn't say anything. But I thought there's a big issue here that has to do with government having less and less of an investment of even a moral investment in the university, taking away the funding that they had been giving us for years for deferred maintenance, for instance. As we mentioned, you know, the buildings falling apart, um, the environment becoming less and less safe, not to mention aesthetically really unpleasant. And, you know, yes, the president's salary is perhaps kind of a lightning rod or a site of obvious dissent and dissatisfaction, but I wished we had been talking about other things. And that's not the way that town hall went at all. But you can understand why students and probably faculty, even if they didn't speak out much at that point in time, many have noted 
that in, above and beyond the salary of senior administrators, those things are simply an indication of a broader problem with administration and the governance of Memorial University, which is administrative bloat, a larger and larger amount of annual budgets going towards paying senior administrators, and a lot of new jobs in senior administration being created, while students and faculty, especially contract faculty, are feeling the squeeze at the bottom. So people have cited this administrative bloat and what they feel is a culture of entitlement among senior administrators to spend large amounts of money, tens of thousands of dollars, whining and dining and, and doing business for the university while students, let's face it, it's not just that students are struggling, but many have had to drop out of university or not get a post-secondary education in the first place. And there are many, many barriers to that. But, you know, let's try to go back, let's try to understand where student, where those students might be coming from, because I can feel it's a genuine feeling from them uh, and among a lot of faculty now who have watched for years the senior administration of Memorial University and the government spar over funding and over the, the governance of the university and over the future of the university, and they just got fed up. So a couple of weeks later, after that town hall, on May 11th, 2017, students stormed the Board of Regents meeting where Munn's annual budget was being approved. And here's what Alex Knoll, a student and education rights activist at that time, told CBC reporter Terry Roberts. So I understand that you let the protesters in the meeting room, is that right? Yeah, I did. How did you do that? I opened the emergency door. Why did you do that? Uh, because people needed to see what the university administration does behind closed doors. This is a public institution and it has to remain accountable and transparent. Noreen, what did you do as provost and VP to bolster transparency and accountability? Well, first I would say, uh, you know, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> uh, wholeheartedly, 100%. And one of the things I did, which had actually never been done before at Memorial, was open up the budget consultation process. So I established a budget consultation committee. Students were on that committee, faculty was on that committee. And we worked with spreadsheets. We worked with as much data as is available. There was nothing hidden about any of those discussions. I worked with our VP Finance and his office to get all of the information that we, we could put together in a coherent fashion to say, this is our budget, here are our expenses, here's our revenue, here's where it goes, and we've got a problem at Memorial. We've got 80%, this is typical of most universities, mm -hmm. of budget is tied up in salaries. When tuition comes in, and in those days it was now, it looks almost like a golden age, so much lower, 80% of the tuition that comes in goes to the academic program. Maybe that formula has changed a bit, but I doubt it. The rest goes to so-called general, right, over which the president largely has discretion. It's not true, I might add, of other campuses. At Grenfell, they, all the tuition goes towards Grenfell, and they can do what they like with it. And I've always felt that was a kind of upside-down way of managing the budget of the university. If you've got 80, 82% of your activity at the university is your academic life, 
it doesn't necessarily follow that you should only get that percentage of the tuition coming in. So academic programming was getting squeezed. Our capacity to hire faculty full-time, terribly squeezed. And I thought the way to impress upon students and faculty and colleagues uh, the reality of that was to share that information. So in the first year, after I set up this committee, I had budget consultations at all campuses. I had five on the St. John's campus. Went up to the MI, I went up to Corner Brook, and I did that for the rest of the time that I was uh, provost and vice president academic. And, you know, we had some really intense conversations at those meetings. They were a form of town hall. But at least people had an idea of the reality of the situation we were facing. And they were public. The slideshows were public. They were widely shared. So I would say that's a major contribution I made, uh, is in, in providing as much transparency as possible to how money was being spent. And uh, I don't know whether that's happening right now. I'm retired. I'm out of that loop. But I'm not sure those kinds of open forums, budget consultations, are happening so widely with the community. But did those things work? Because as you said earlier, the higher you move up in senior administration, the more complicit you become. What you seem to be saying is that there are systemic or structural issues within the institution of Memorial University that prevent somebody like yourself or anybody who reaches the upper echelons of the management of that university and wants to make changes. At what point did you realize that you were up against something that you were not going to be able to change? In the first year or so of holding that office, you're just trying to figure out what the hell the job is. And, you know, nobody trains you for these positions. It's experience that moves you there, regardless of the kind of corporate culture that's creeped into post-secondary education and institutional life. There isn't the kind of training or orienting or anything like that for these roles. It's just whatever you're bringing to it and you're learning on the job. And understanding those spreadsheets, understanding how the money was being spent, trying to break through some of the kind of obscure, let's say, rationales for how money was being spent. So it, it took me about a year and a bit just to understand that while doing the day-to-day -day job. And I'd say once I did, I start to realize the whole budget model was out of whack, as I say, just talking about the academic portion of it, which gets short shrift because money is going to other places. You can call it consultants or headhunting or high salaries, whatever, you know, that's just the obvious stuff. But money gets spent in all kinds of other ways that it might be questionable, not necessarily transparent. Those elements of budgeting are not immediately transparent even to somebody who's going into a senior admin position. It takes a while to understand that, as I say. And then, yeah, I wouldn't call, in my experience, completely helpless or powerless. But you start to realize you're up against something bigger than you thought that you would be. For instance, um, in talking about tuition and the increasing pressure, let's say, from government and maybe the whole Canadian climate, cultural climate, to 
take advantage of internationalization, international recruits in students to increase disproportionately, I would say irrationally, the tuition fees for those students. I insisted time after time on the record at those budget consultation meetings that I could not get behind that. I would not support an increasing disparity between our domestic and our international students. But when we would go up to Treasury Board to argue that point to government or argue about the need to have more flexibility in our budgeting, I was very clear at the time that elected officials and staff started to kind of smell the whiff of cash from internationalization and thought that they could argue to the voting base domestically that those students could be, they wouldn't use the word exploited, but that's essentially what it comes down to. And uh, that's a principle that I, I certainly stated and, and held to while I was in office. Things have changed since I left, obviously, and that gap has grown. Mm-hmm. First, it was raising tuition on international students after the raising of many various fees in, in 2018. Yeah. Then the tuition freeze, two decades old, was lifted or thawed. Government cut funding. Memorial University is now forced to make very unpopular decisions. But again, from the perspective of the student and the faculty member and staff who share an understanding of education as a right and as a public good, where exactly, before you left in 2020, was the university administration then running into, or where were you specifically running into these barriers? Well, you know, we had very little uh, traction in conversations with the elected officials at that time. It was a different government. There's some of the same players. But um, there was really not very much interest in, or I would say imagination for, entertaining a vision of memorial such as, say, Joey, had articulated. We moved a long way from that. When I say we, I would say certainly government has moved a long way from that. It tends to and increasingly sees kind of market-driven, tech-based, niche training for students. It speaks in terms of, you know, return on investment, kind of language that attends to a corporate discourse and further and further away from, quite frankly, the teaching mission that Memorial was really founded to to generate and encourage, um, the education part of Memorial's inception. And that's part of a bigger move across the country, of course, but it's it's sad, tragic, that we have moved so far away from that teaching mission towards much more narrower set of priorities. And it was, I'd say, virtually impossible to engage in that conversation at the time in any way with government about this. We had talked to them about at least not so much thawing the freeze, but allowing for cost of living increases to pay for the kinds of, um, uh, you know, anything from a paperclip to asbestos abatement needs, kind of physical plant needs that we needed as costs were rising in the real world. But there was no interest in that. 
Um, in 2017, you, you, you feuded publicly with then-Education Minister Jerry Byrne, and so did Gary Kachinowski. There were, there were words exchanged and there was media coverage of it. What was Jerry Byrne, what was his view of education? Yeah. Um, what, uh, what was the government in your time where you had that kind of access? What was their view of the role that uh, Memorial University education plays? We know what they say publicly, but what did you sense from internal discussions? Not really very much, frankly, outside of, um, you know, platitudes about training students for job market and growing the economy of Newfoundland Labrador. Really nothing very imaginative or visionary. I think in the case of the then Minister of Education, he was, and the reason I became really outspoken about this, he was definitely playing the students, uh, pandering to them telling them he was on their side. I'm not quite sure about what. Largely, I guess, a tuition freeze. But in terms of a kind of elevated conversation about the purpose of Memorial, what Memorial should look like in five years or 10 years, that was a kind of conversation I was definitely trying to drive and drive out publicly. That wasn't happening. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any evidence of any statements of that nature at the time. And maybe even since, as you say, there's a kind of superficial, you know, endorsement of memorial, uh, but not necessarily as a teaching institution, not necessarily as a comprehensive university serving a variety of disciplines and needs. That's not a conversation we seem to be having publicly. Government then, as it, I assume, does now, was looking at their bottom line and seeing what a huge chunk of change the investment in Memorial was and is, and how that might be affecting their credit ratings. Their focus was on a different horizon, not necessarily on the public good that our mission statement serves Memorial should be serving. Let's just talk about the mission statement for a second and the idea that Memorial University has a special obligation to the people of the province. I know this has been talked about a lot, but what I find very interesting about it is that of all the discussion that's existed in the media and elsewhere around this, I'm still not clear what the special obligation is. <laughs> what to you is the special obligation that Memorial University has to the people of the province? Well, I've always understood it to follow from, you know, Joey's speech in the legislature and how the act came into being as a commitment to the citizens of this province to a better life to enhancing skills, to having access to the kind of training and education that this province needed to be in the world in a better way, to enhance quality of life. And I've always understood it to be that, stemming from that original vision, if you will. The tension that sometimes in my mind arose from that was, has the university became more diverse and as we recruited students from other places in this world and gave them access to what Memorial has to offer, um, that whole question of the special obligation becomes a bit complicated. And I would have conversations like that with students and, and colleagues. And we understood there was a tension, not necessarily a contradiction, but I think it's still an important descriptor it's an important part of the mission statement. I mean, in my fantasy of what Memorial would be or could be or perhaps should be 
is we are not like other universities in this country. I would hope that in the ways that we see the province is different culturally, historically, and in many other ways on the good side of the ledger. I would have hoped that there'd be a commitment to access in the full sense of the word, in little or no tuition, in a huge government investment for the purpose of providing that special obligation and being distinct from every other university in that way in terms of access and demonstrating the commitment the province has in its own future by providing that as opposed to saying, well, we need to be like everybody else. We need to be competitive. I don't, I don't even know what it means when you say competitive. How does that jive with that special obligation to the citizens or people of Newfoundland and Labrador? I know I'm not going to see that vision realized in my lifetime. It's not the way perhaps even voters think about what should be done for Memorial. I don't know. But we have the opportunity to be that kind of university. Money is spent in all kinds of ways in this province, certainly to serve industry and to serve the private sector. When you start shifting your commitment as a government away from investment in public education and put that on the backs of students with higher and higher education, you are actually moving towards a more private system into the, the, the individual consumer has to bear the weight of an education. It's no longer part of a public commitment, and that's what's happening. And it can't be just about serving one sector in a kind of moment in time where suddenly we're shifting to that market or to that market. It's got to be for the long term and on a much higher imaginative plane about education. The idea of the university founded two centuries ago is still an ideal that we want to aspire to, provide our students with critical apparatus to understand the world they're living in and moving into. And that, to me, still holds true. Why can't we be different? Why can't we aspire to real public good, real public commitment? I mean, it opens the question, are we really a public university anymore? Or what part of who we are is public? When we come back, students, faculty, and even the former provost of Memorial University all see post-secondary education as a right and a public good. So what would it take to reverse Munn's decades-long slide into corporatization? That and more when we return. Welcome to Barry Grounds. I'm Justin Brake. Deep into the era of corporatization of post-secondary education, many are still fighting to maintain some semblance of their institution's original purpose, to produce members of a society who can think critically and make informed decisions for themselves and for their communities, and in the case of Memorial University, for our province. 
But as former MUN provost and VP academic Noreen Golfman tells us, trying to change things from the inside is futile. Say, going back three years, that you and the President Kachinowski, VP of Finance Kent Decker, and other senior administrators, say you were all on the same page and you decided that you were going to shift strategies and stop fighting with the provincial government as students and faculty looked on wondering what their future of the university was going to look like. Why is it not that simple to just side with (laughs) students and faculty and start a big fight against the province and fight to win the minds of voters in the province and everybody else who could conceivably understand education as being a public good instead of a commodity? Yeah, well, I'm not sure we were on the same page about that. Again, goes back to the kind of complicitous culture of senior administration. And there's an, an important point here. The border regions, largely appointed by government itself in a kind of anomalous way compared to the way most boards are, are established in this country, is the boss of the president. He's answerable to them. So the degree of separation between him and his bosses and government is negligible. It's minimal. And a president gets hired as an employee of the board and by extension of the province. And so how entangled is that relationship that compels a president to be responding to the agenda or the dictates of a higher body. So one might like to think that there's a much more autonomy and um, confidence, let's say, or uh, resolve to challenge that structure. But uh, show me a president in this country who does that. I'll show you a president who probably gets fired after three years. So are you saying that people in the province who might be interested in being a part of this much-needed transformative change at Memorial University should put their name in the hats to join the Board of Regents? Well, I think the way in which the Board of Regents is established in the first place needs radical reform. I mean, the chair of the board is appointed by government. To me, that's just insane. The board itself should be appointing its own chair. It's the way even most corporate boards work. Get government out of that process. Should government be appointing the vast majority, what is it, 17 members of the board? Uh, Whatever number it ends up being after the act is changed or reform happens if it does, uh, government should be out of that business. The community should be, I mean, the wider community and the memorial community should have a say in who those people are. Yes, they need to have skills, there needs to be criteria. They have huge fiduciary responsibility for overseeing how money is spent at the university. Mm -hmm. But if they're so implicated in the agenda of government, and if government's agenda is, is narrow and narrower and more concerned about a bottom line than it is about investing and not, and thinking about profit as opposed to a moral investment in the education of the province, then you've got a problem. There may be some changes coming soon to the Memorial University Act following uh, the Auditor General's uh, review of MUN's finances. 
Of course, uh, we've learned in recent days that a request has been put forth to government, which seems to have been well received, that faculty would like some more decision-making power, including a few seats on the Board of Regents. That's one thing. But if power is transferred from the province to the university through any legislative reforms, there's still the problem of a university administration that some people say um, their approach and uh, disconnect with students and faculty has been exemplified in this handling of a certain case involving a student activist. And I want to just talk about that with you briefly for a minute because we talked about it last year. So following the closure of Munn's campus newspaper, The Muse, one student activist in particular took it upon himself to fill in the gap of information, the flow of information and accountability by starting a blog. And on that blog, Matthew Barter has done journalism. He's filed access to information requests, published findings like administrative salaries. He's published photo essays of decrepit infrastructure around the campus in St. John's. He's challenged decision makers every step of the way throughout the fiscal year for several years now. And he's been a thorn in the administration's side. Um, you know him well because he protested your involvement in policy when you were a senior administrator. But when he took his one-person silent protest to current Mun president, Bianne Timmons, while she spoke at a government announcement in December 2021, he was punished by the university. Barter's taken the matter to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador now, but last year you spoke out against Memorial's handling of his case, calling it a real overreach. And you also disputed the university's characterization of him as a sexist or misogynistic person in the way that he was protesting Vianne Timmons' leadership. What does the way the university is dealing with Matthew Barter say about the bigger picture of the crisis in governance at Memorial University? Yeah, that is a really important question. I think it speaks to a kind of imperiousness. Uh, I think uh, what we're seeing on the picket lines right now is a, uh, a sign of the, or a manifestation of a kind of deep anger rage against a kind of imperiousness. That's uh, my personal view. Yes, there are definitely issues about the need to have real transformational change, but it's obviously coming from somewhere deeper. And I think that what I called overreach and the dealing of Matt Barter is uh, kind of symptomatic of that. It's just one, I think, of a series of events that have really generated and, and perhaps driven, inspired people students and faculty in a way I have never seen before. You know, I talked earlier about the kind of silence of the faculty at that town hall way back when. Things are quite different now, and I think it's quite heartening to see the solidarity. The community of protest is much larger than it was in my day. Uh, you know, there were a cluster of very highly motivated student activists who took us on and maybe rightly so. But now there is much more clarity around that kind of protest, much more solidarity. I think goes back to your earlier question about the wider community getting much more engaged in this conversation about things that need to change. It's hard when there's only a handful of students driving that conversation. But if you've got thousands driving that conversation, then there's hope for some change. What do you want to say to folks who are listening, 
who are watching very closely, or maybe they're on the picket lines. What do you want them to know right now about the struggle that they are engaged in from the perspective of somebody who was recently in a senior admin role? I see people on Twitter, faculty on Twitter, asking who actually makes the decision whether we go back to the table and settle this through arbitration or you know, through negotiations. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like uh, there's a clear understanding of where the power to make decisions specifically resides right now. Well, I'm, I've got to say I'm very heartened by, as I mentioned, the solidarity that I'm seeing between students and faculty and staff and other unions in this province. Those people honking on the parkway, what seems to be a surge, unlike anything I've seen in all the years that I've been working for Memorial and living here, a surge of support for change. And it does take numbers. It does take a critical mass, I think, to make enough noise and to articulate the kind of change that needs to happen for more transparency, accountability, more engagement, more share of decision-making, and for more access for people, not just our students living here, but I would say students everywhere, to get a good quality education, such as Memorial has always provided. So I'm heartened. I'm inspired by it. I'd be on the lines. Uh, Of course, I can't imagine being in that situation as a provost and vice president. I just like to think that never would have happened, but that's a fantasy, perhaps. I just uh, hope that the courage is sustained and that we do see some transformation or conversation towards that transformation that's real. I think what's really great about what's happening now is we're having these conversations. There's a wider reach of it. Even, you know, our public broadcaster that tends to see things really in terms of black and white, starting to understand the concept of governance, uh, starting to cover some of these stories. I think the, the articulation of those messages has been really forceful, very, very effective, um, starting to work. And maybe more and more people will take this on. It's going to be numbers. So who decides if Mun goes back to the table tomorrow to sit down with the faculty union? Whose decision is that? I don't know how it's working now. In my time, it was certainly, um, ultimately, it's the decision of the president. And, um, you know, what used to happen was a conversation the president would have with the bargaining team. And then there'd be a conversation with government about what could be done. Noreen Golfman, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today and for sharing your insight and experiences. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, good luck with this whole venture. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for the first episode of Berry Grounds. We're on this journey together and only we can make this happen. We're doing this on a shoestring and we've pulled together enough to bring you about eight or ten episodes. 
But we want to keep going beyond that. We need to go beyond that to bring you the stories, investigations, and analysis that I know will help shape discourse around key issues in Newfoundland and Labrador and open up new discussions. There's so much to cover. In the coming weeks, we'll be diving headfirst into racism in Newfoundland and Labrador and whether the province's Ministerial Committee on Anti-Racism is living up to its name. We'll also take you to the Port-a-Port -Port Peninsula, ground zero of the proposed massive wind farm where residents have already begun on-the-ground action in opposition to the project. And there's so much more in store. Our next episode drops Monday, February 20th. In the meantime, subscribe to Berry Grounds wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and help us reach more listeners. Episodes are also available at theindependent.ca slash berrygrounds or at harbingermedianetwork.com, where you can find tons of amazing progressive podcasts from across Canada. You can find me on Twitter at Barry Grounds, and you can also follow the Independence Facebook page for Barry Grounds updates and lots of other great journalism from Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm Justin Brake. Thanks for listening. Yeah.